0: This is episode 279 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you can support the show and contribute directly to programming, even asking questions that get included in the interviews. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life.
1: Hi, I'm Bess Chilver, historical costumer. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life
0: with my friend, Kansas de Cash.
1: They knew of different varieties. Gerard says his were round as a ball.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: In the play Merry Wives of Windsor, Falstaff declares, let the sky rain potatoes. What's unique about this quote, despite Falstaff calling for root vegetables to rain down from the sky, which is, of course, weird on its own, but potatoes on the whole were brand new to England at the exact time Shakespeare was including this quote in his play. Mary Wives of Windsor was written towards the end of the 16th century, between 1597 and 1601. Potatoes are thought to have arrived in the late 1580s or the early 1590s. Once the potato arrived in Europe, it was used for medicine, grown by some gardeners for their flowers, and in 1597, the same time frame we think Mary Wives of Windsor was written, John Gerard added the first printed picture of the potato to his herbal, although he thought that the potato was native to Virginia. Here today to help us sort through what it was like to see a potato for the first time, as well as how potatoes were used in Shakespeare's lifetime, is our guest and expert in the history of plants, Sally Cunningham. Sally Cunningham is a professional gardener, teacher, and consultant with over 45 years of experience in horticulture. She currently works with Garden Organic, formerly Henry Doubleday Research Organization, where she has served for over 25 years. Garden Organic is the UK's leading organic gardening charity. Garden Organic has been helping people grow their own food and help the environment for over 70 years and is the home of the Heritage Seed Library, a living library dedicated to preserving lost and forgotten vegetables for now and future growers. Sally has previously worked with the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew as an outreach worker in Leicester, Leicester Museums, where she cared for the gardens at Newark Houses built around 1511, and Belgrave Hall built in 1709. Sally has a lifelong interest in growing and eating all forms of vegetable plants and is the author of Asian Vegetables as well as co-author of A Guide to Growing Exotic Vegetables in the UK with Dr. A. Rosenfeld. Hello, Sally. Welcome to that Shakespeare life. Hi. How are you doing? I am doing very well and I'm excited to dive in here to the history of potatoes and really get a look at what this was like. I've read that Sir Francis Drake gets credit for bringing potatoes to England for the first time or possibly Thomas Harriet, who worked with Francis Drake as items brought back from Drake's circumnavigation around the world. So he took this trip and and I read that he brought them back. Is that actually how and when the potato arrived in England?
1: Nobody's really sure. This is the trouble. They weren't great at record keeping. It might have been Francis Drake, although it was, he was supposed to have brought them to Ireland first. It might have been Harriet. There's also a story, it was John Hawkins, but nobody really knows. We know um, Drake also brought back what they called the um, the sweet potato, or we call sweet potato, Ipomoea batatus.
0: Now, are those the same sweet potato? Do we have the same sweet potatoes here in the U.S.?
1: No, you have both, but there was an awful lot of confusion in the in the early days between sweet potatoes and what you call Irish potatoes.
0: I um, see. Sweet, okay, sweet
1: potatoes are the Ipomoeas. Irish potato is Solanum.
0: Okay, so it would it would not have been orange like sweet potatoes. Here we think of as being orange. You're talking about an Irish potato that's white on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: that. They're white now, but they weren't necessarily then. This is, this okay. is one of the reasons the confusion starts because, um, of course, the, the Aztecs and the, their forebears had been record, been breeding them for thousands of years before Columbus ever got to America. So there were a lot of different varieties. A lot of different um, kinds. Some were, some were purple. Some were reddish. Some were red all the way through. Some were red-skinned. Some were purple-skinned. Some were, purple-skinned, some were purple all the way through, and some were spotty.
0: And they were all so, called the same thing.
1: You know, it they didn't look didn't look quite like we have now.
0: Now I know that for some Europeans, any plant that was considered a nightshade carried some suspicion because they thought it had this potential to be connected with witchcraft. Was the potato in this group of of plants that were kind of feared or, or viewed with a little bit of skepticism because of the witchcraft resemblance to a nightshade?
1: I think it was more because they were not, most of the nightshades over here are deadly poisonous.
0: So, Which it's is a, a bl- smart thing. Reason not to eat <laughs> <Yeah>. it,
1: <laughs> but the flowers, in particular, of a potato look—you know—they they show you it's a nightshade family. And they're quite, you know, seriously poisonous. And yes, there was a witchcraft thing, but I think it was more the toxicity thing that was the real problem.
0: <laughs> more, more directly practical reasons for being a little bit. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Now, were uh, potatoes immediately received as a food item or were they like this curiosity, this exotic plant people collected? Well, again,
1: there's, some, there's discussion as this. The story goes that um, Drake first tried the potato apples you know the little fruit that you get on of course they made him sick so he ordered the gardener to dig him up and it was a gardener that first found they were that the roots were edible but I, I think that's just a, an urban myth because um, obviously he imported them knowing that you ate the roots so I think that's unlikely but um, they were considered very expensive food items and of course because of this they were considered aphrodisiac that's where that Bit in false stuff comes from, you know, kissing comfits and eringios. Eringios were sea holly, which is a plant you get by the British seaside and probably bits of the American seaside as well. It's more or less the whole northern hemisphere. And it has these long tap roots, which, if you've got a dirty mind, are slightly penis like. They were sold candied as some um, sort of the Elizabethan version of Viagra. So potatoes were up there as some. Um, you know, something something to be for king's feasts and uh, entertaining your lady love. But they certainly weren't an ordinary food item.
0: Are there recipes for potatoes that date to the sixteenth and seventeenth century, or do we know how they were being prepared?
1: Seventeenth century, yes. Gerard, who was in the fifteen hundreds, he at Saint Shakespeare's time, he was he said they ate them roasted in the in the ashes.
0: Now this is John Gerard, the man who wrote the herbal. Yes, okay. Yeah, that's right. That
1: he said they ate them roasted in the ashes, and I've also got a recipe from the complete cookbook. He um, gives a recipe for potatoes in a pie, and you put your injo roots in, and the traditional um, medieval sort of sugar, ginger, pepper, a little bit of saffron, and um, a bone marrow. So I would consider it would be very sort of um, rich and possibly slightly chewy and mildly spicy, but it was supposed to get you going rather than uh, as a food, I think. It was more of um, an aid Ob- to lust, <laughs> <possibly>. <laughs> <laughs> Um And, of course, there was also the, the confusion with sweet potatoes. So you have recipes for sweet potato Dishes using Irish potatoes, so they'd be boiled and then baked with sugar. That actually uh, which,
0: sounds like that would taste good, boiled and baked with sugar.
1: Well, I, I have got a Victorian recipe somewhere for um, little sweet Irish potato in cases, done with sugar and and spice, and served with a raspberry sauce. <laughs> Wow, Which that's would, fancy. Which apparently was used on a steamship <laughs> crossing the Atlantic, I suppose. So you, you could have bottled raspberries, so you could get your raspberry sauce.
0: And, Put, uh, putting that to good use on the ship, yeah. So yeah. you mentioned that potatoes had a variety of shapes and, and colours. Were they all called potatoes and they just uh, had all these different varieties or did they have different names too?
1: Well, they had different Inca names. I don't think any of those were particularly recorded over here, because obviously people here thought they were savages, when in fact they were a very highly civilised crowd and probably a damn sight more civilised than we were. But there you are. They knew of different varieties. Gerard says his were round as a ball. Clusius says some of his were distinctly um, penis-shaped. Clusius was a, a German botanist. So again, that contributes to the aphrodisiac theme.
0: There was a lot of that, I think, in, in English botany of this period where it's yes. like the shape determined what it was there, used there for. There was a
1: thing called the Doctrine of Signatures which said that if something looked like a part of the body, then it was good for treating that. So you had lungwort um, pulmonary with spotty leaves that were more or less the shape of a lung, and that was supposed to be good for coughs and things such as that and, and um, lesser cell and dime whose roots look like a little congested mass of um, tubers, and that was good for piles.
0: Potatoes do grow flowers on the top part, so was there anyone growing the potato as a flowering plant as opposed to something to eat?
1: I think they were growing them more as an ornamental plant, not necessarily a flowering plant, but as a curiosity. Um, bear in mind that the light, usually growing in, in England, anything from a sort of a, a swathe, of the subtropical parts. The biggest limitation isn't temperature because you can overcome that with either artificial heating or with sheltered gardens. It's day length because I don't know what it's like with you, but at the moment we've got 17 hours day and we'll go up to 20-odd hours daylight here. And if you go up to Scotland, you get up to 24 hours daylight or damn near 24 hours daylight. It's certainly dark enough to read a newspaper at midnight if you go up to the north of Scotland. Whereas, you know, sort of places where potatoes originated from, although it was colder as you went further up the Andes, your day length was still around 14 to 15 hours at most in the summer. Um, So plants really struggled to grow. One of the biggest difficulties in getting them adapted to the UK was actually finding a variety that would crop.
0: Well, which variety won out? Was there one in the in the sixteenth and seventeenth century that they seemed to prefer? There were about about
1: four or five. I think the first ones that came in would be sort of red and white with a um a russet skin, I suppose similar to Russet Burbank possibly. And they were quite lumpy looking at the drawings. Gerard says he published the very first woodcut that was ever made in Europe of a potato, although I think it was actually made by Tabernimontas, who was a, a very famous illustrator of the time. And he had compiled a little, about a 1,000 woodcuts for Clusius' his book, Rerum Botanica. And um, unfortunately, Clusius went bankrupt and uh, his things never got published and Gerard took the woodcuts. At I think, quite a cut price. And then published them them as his own? Well, published them in his herbal. I don't think he attributed them to anybody in particular. He just put me pictures in and assumed people would um, think he'd done them as well.
0: Um, Well, on other episodes about plants that we've done here on That Shakespeare Life, there were samples of these plants that they found even like pre- pre- preserved plant specimens from this time period. And I wonder if there are any like that of the potato.
1: Potatoes, yeah. Not so many, sadly. The biggest difficulty is actually keeping anywhere dry and um, vermin-proof on a, a ship on the long Atlantic voyage. People were more into either saving things as seed or making detailed drawings because obviously on a small, very crowded ship, space was as premium and um, dry space was usually reserved for things like food, which was slightly more important than some of the Yes, I can see specimen. where that would
0: be the priority, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah. Later on, there's some in Cambridge University herbarium, but they're 17th century, not um, not 16th. The Chelsea Physic Garden had some early potatoes growing in it. That was set up a little bit after Shakespeare's time, but not much. And, of course, Gerard had his garden, which Shakespeare may have seen, because um, at one stage, when Gerard was the um, master of the company of barber surgeons, Shakespeare was living round the corner, more or less. In I think it was, was it Welbeck Road or
0: Welbeck Lane? There, and when he was living with the Mount
1: That's right, yeah. Because, no, I I checked on that one. And um, they could well have met.
0: How exciting. Um, I um, hope they did.
1: That would be fun. Well, I hope they did, you know. And and Gerard was very proud of his garden. He had over a thousand different plants growing in it. So um, I'm sure he would have shown it off to all, all and sundry, you know.
0: And anyone walking by, I imagine. More or less, yeah. What alternatives to potatoes were being eaten at this time?
1: It, dep- it depended a lot on your income. Ordinary people, it was still pottage, which was beans, peas, oats, um, anything that could be dried and made into a sort of a porridge Um, I suppose the modern equivalent would be peas pudding. Do you have peas pudding in America? I don't know.
0: If we have it, I've never eaten it, but I do know um, what like oatmeal well, is.
1: Well, if you, if you come to a pub, certainly in the Midlands or in Wales. You will get faggots and peas, which is a very traditional, very English dish. Um, it's usually served after some sort of sport, like long alley skittles or darts match. Faggots are basically offal wrapped in core fat, baked in the oven. Mushy peas are served in a bowl or as a dollop if they're slightly less mushy. And they're dried peas that are stewed down, and they're they're stewed down to a a green semi-solid gloop, which is eaten with vinegar and black pepper. And it's rather nice. <laughs> um, and also great to dip on chips.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't have thought to put it on chips. That makes sense. The only time I've, I've been to England once and they served us this and i didn't i did not know what it was until uh, yeah. until right now that's what it is it was good but i didn't yeah, know what no. i was eating
1: but it, it would be something similar to that but if you were richer you had things like skirret, which is a tall plant an umbelliferous sort of plant that gets up to five foot and has white flowers and the great advantage of it is that you can dig out the root leave a little bit and it'll regrow the next year And that's a very nice, white, bland, pleasant-tasting thing. The only snag with it, I found, is that it's got a little string going down the middle. Carrots were grown for horses, mostly, as white carrot. They were just starting to come in just after Shakespeare died. And, of course, there would be things like chestnuts, which were prized. But they weren't really a, a food. Mostly it was bread.
0: These are fascinating looks into potatoes and just kind of how they, how they arrived and what they were seen as. And I, I know we would love to learn more about the history here of, of where they came from and the different varieties. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can point us towards if we want to look into this history further?
1: Well, there's a really marvelous website with the Potato Institute I'd certainly recommend Gerard's Herbal and I'd recommend Sturtivant's Edible Plants of the World and both of those are available from Dover Press I think as facsimile copies but um, Sturtivant I wouldn't recommend as a practical thing because some of the things he says are edible I'd certainly be dubious about but it's, it's a really fascinating reference book to dip in and out of the only snag is that a lot of the plants have changed their latin names it's still fascinating reading
0: i didn't know the latin names of plants could change i thought once they were named it was permanent
1: well they they tend to stay fairly steady but nowadays we're starting to classify things botanically according to their dna not according to their characteristics. Oh, I see. And it's taken me a hell of a long time to get my head around this because I learned <laughs> them the old way. How and After
0: I'm, you've put a lot of effort into learning all of these plants and then for them to reclassify them, I can only imagine that's frustrating.
1: <laughs> well, it, put it this way. I didn't realize violets were closer to lime trees <gasps> than they are to, say, beech trees. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, it's um, it screws your head up a bit.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. Well, we'll link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go and check out the Potato Institute and direct direct links to, to these books. So we'll help you find those. And now, Sally, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: Well, I think I'd pass on the Bible being a... a pagan but there we are i suppose mind you i suppose paper might be useful for other things firelighting and such and there is that bit about god said made god made a great light so it could be useful but um probably sturtivant, i think
0: you're going to get me struck by lightning sally
1: (laughs) (laughs) probably sturtivant, i think
0: that would be Um, a great one
1: because um that would be could be quite useful on a desert island. I think so.
0: Uh, you could at least walk around and compare the plants on hmm. the island with what Sturdivant seems to have. That would be. That, I think that would yeah. be a good, useful time.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Oh well, I think leave leave that one on the desert island discs that we have here. You're not supposed to be able to take anything useful. You see,
0: so. Oh, I see. Okay,
1: I don't know so- whether that would that would count.
0: Well, I think we'll we'll allow it here on that on that Shakespeare Life version of the Desert mm. Island Book. It, oh, that, it can it you. can be useful. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> so, thank you. So, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: At the moment, thinking what I'm doing. Well, I'm just just having a week week off to hopefully get work on my allotment, but with Garden Organic, we're um, working on a rather nice set of members experiments garden Garden organic is home to the heritage seed library for those of you don't don't know which is devoted to preserving historic and unusual vegetables in england and in other parts of the country we've recently been acquiring all sorts of weird and wonderful things that came to england with various migrants but um, we're working on a members experiment studying whether native insects are attracted more to plants, garden plants, or to weeds. So I shall be going out and studying my plot and counting the number of insects that come and visit a square yard and then a square yard of plants. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do hope you find that they are more attracted to weeds because then I could attra- I could plant the weeds all around the outside of my garden and, and protect the actual vegetable plants. That would well, be a wonderful discovery.
1: <laughs> they-, they usually are. <laughs> Not not always, but usually are. Over here, we find marjoram seems to attract most things.
0: I'll keep that in mind. Sally Cunningham, thank you so much for being here today and taking me through the history of potatoes for the life of William Shakespeare. This has been a really fun conversation, and I thank you for being here. Thank you. If you would like to see visual elements of 16th and 17th century potatoes, including images from John Gerard's herbal and some of the other illustrations that we've referred to in our conversation today, then be sure to check out the show notes. The show notes are where we pack extra archival research about our conversation topics here on the show. And today you can see extra information and history all about 16th and 17th century potatoes, along with more information on Sally Cunningham, Garden Organic, and the links to the resources she recommends you use if you want to just. Explore this topic further. Find all of these things at Cassidycash.com/slash episode 279. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP279. If you're a big fan of the show and you love listening to the history we bring you here each week on that Shakespeare Life, and you would like to go even deeper to the history and the making of our show and really have a hand in asking the questions that we get to ask to our guests here each week, then consider becoming a patron of That Shakespeare Life. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show, not available on public listening platforms, that include extra archival research, images, paintings, and all the bonuses that go along with each one of those all get access to our patrons. Plus, as a patron, you get the chance to see inside the making of our show with bonus interviews, sneak peeks at upcoming shows bonus research as i'm putting the show together i share the extra tidbits with our patrons and you get the chance to submit your questions to be asked during an interview if this sounds like fun to you then please consider joining us on patreon you can support our show and power the work we do here to bring you world-class history interviews each week find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that's patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.